Welcome to a special birthday tribute to Abraham Lincoln. I'm Clint Cargow, the host of WNIJ's Drinking with Lincoln podcast. February 12th was Honest Abe's 213th birthday, and we're spending the next hour on a Lincoln Palooza. We'll share songs, stories, historical perspectives, and interviews from the people who know him best, Lincoln presenters. But don't call them impersonators. We don't like impersonators. Elvis has impersonators. <laughs> Lincoln has presenters. All that's ahead on WNIJ. Lincoln stood six foot four. He kept us united through the Civil War because he believed every person had the right to be unchained, liberated, completely free. So he rocked the nation with a proclamation, a document advance. And I'm Clint Cargow, the host of WNIJ's Drinking with Lincoln podcast. You just heard the song Abraham Lincoln from the Disney cartoon series The Ghost and Molly McGee. At 213 years old, Abraham Lincoln is still so popular that cartoon characters are rapping about his life on Disney+. I like Lincoln so much that I created a podcast just so I could grab beers with Lincoln presenters. The Drinking with Lincoln podcast can be heard on WNIJ's website and anywhere you get your podcasts. But today, you lucky folks in Lincoln land are in for a special treat. In honor of Honest Abe's birthday, we're spending the next hour on a Lincoln Palooza. We'll share songs, stories, historical perspectives, and interviews from the people who live, eat, and breathe Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln presenters. These interviews were conducted between 2018 and 2020. So let's cover some basic Lincoln facts. Lincoln was not born in the land of Lincoln. He was born in a log cabin in 1809 just outside Hodgenville, Kentucky. The family moved to Indiana when he was around seven. He lost a mother and a sister there, his only sibling. Then he gained a stepmother and three step-siblings. The family moved to Illinois when he was 21. He loved to read, he loved to wrestle, and he was self-educated. His father thought he was lazy for pursuing education over life on the farm. Also, he was really tall. How tall? Well, if you ask honky-tonk singer Johnny Horton, he was tall, tall. But they didn't know that one fine day that he would rule this USA and be the best leader in all the land. Yes, young Abe Lincoln make a tall, tall man. Young Abe Lincoln make a tall, tall man. That's a fun little patriotic song from the 1960s. For Lincoln's actual height, we'll turn to longtime Lincoln presenter Max Daniels. But in his time, 6'4 was literally a giant. Most men were 5'7, 5'8. Although in the state of Illinois, at his time, there was a, a group of nine state legislators who were all over six foot tall. And in Illinois history, they're referred to as the Long Nine. And they're actually the ones who were very instrumental in getting the state capitol move from Vandalia over to Springfield. Another thing we hear about Lincoln is his voice. There are several accounts of Lincoln having a high-pitched, reedy, almost squeaky-sounding voice. But not all Lincoln presenters agree. Here's actor and Lincoln presenter Michael Krebs. What I found is the high squeaky thing that we've all heard about. He had a real high-pitched voice. That was only due to the fact he was yelling to 15,000 people. And he would actually bring his voice up a little bit because he found out it carried a little further. We don't hear about any of this kind of vocal thing in his presidency. When he was in a chamber and he was addressing Congress, 
nobody talks about a high squeaky falsetto breaking voice. I, I think, it, I don't know if he had a baritone voice, but I just try to keep it as much Illinois, Kentucky. I don't think he has that much of a dialect from Kentucky. I think he's more shaped by Illinois than he is by Kentucky. Lincoln was out of Kentucky by the time he was eight years old. Here's Lincoln presenter Kevin Wood sharing how he presents Lincoln's voice. When I first started Lincoln, I doing Lincoln, I really didn't change my voice at all. Yeah, I had spent six years in central Illinois, so I figured uh, that's close enough. But as time went on, I realized I needed to put in a, a little bit of a, a Kentucky twang in it. So that's where I started moderating a little bit. But as you say, we, we don't have recordings. Now, it's interesting. I will sometimes do a program as Abraham Lincoln, and someone will come up afterwards and say to me, and you and you sound just like him too. <laughs> and, and, and I said, "Oh, you mean based on the uh, recordings you have my voice?" <laughs> but and and the descriptions we have are not necessarily consistent either. Right. So uh, I just do the best I can. And of course, uh, Central Illinois, when Lincoln was living here, even as a young man, had a lot of people from Kentucky and Tennessee and Virginia mm-hmm. in it. He, and he spent the first 21 years of his life essentially in the South, in Kentucky and Southern Indiana. So to talk more slowly than normal is the other important thing. Not everyone is aware of an aspect of Lincoln's character that often gets overlooked. He was funny, really funny. Here's Michael Krebs. And it's always been a point of mine from day one in doing Lincoln and producing my own show that the audience has to know about the humor of Lincoln. He just had one of the greatest senses of humor of any of our presidents, and I just think people need to know that. Because you always have this dark image of Lincoln, this foreboding, the Civil War weighing down on him. But we have to remember all the great quotes of Lincoln, the great amount of humor he displayed. I think one of my favorite quotes of his is, I laugh because I must not cry. And I think that's what kept Lincoln's spirits up and why he liked to attend theater and why he liked to see comedies, because he needed something to bolster his spirit a little bit during the tragedy of the Civil War. So I think it's always very important to let Lincoln's humor shine. Not a lot of people now know that Lincoln was funny. Did a lot of people back then know that he was funny? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, his being able to tell stories in court, his being able to reach a jury, no matter what educational level they had. And a lot of times he would just... uh, hammer a statement over and over again until he reached the entire jury or reached the entire audience. So humor was a great asset for him. Do you have any uh, favorite Lincoln anecdotes that you like to to tell? There's one we dare get away with in school. There's only so much Lincoln humor we can actually give to the school kids. Some of it may be not too appropriate for elementary school, but safer for middle school. Lincoln, in trying to tell a simple story, trying to reach a jury, A judge was so upset with his presence that he only gave Lincoln one minute to respond. So Lincoln told a story of a man walking down the road with a pitchfork when he was suddenly attacked by a dog. Trying to defend himself and ward off the beast, the prongs of his pitchfork stuck in the critter and killed it. Farmer came running out of his house yelling, what made you kill my dog? The man on the road, well, what made him attack me? The farmer came out with another question. Well, why didn't you come after him with the other end of your pitchfork? And the man on the road said, well, why didn't he come after me with his other end? (laughs) Lincoln would always use humor to try to make someone laugh to get a point across. And I think that's one of the strengths we see today. You can always reach someone with humor 
before you talk to them about serious matters. According to some accounts, Lincoln enjoyed jokes about the body's gastric functions, and some of the stories he told during his traveling lawyer days were so inappropriate they could not be put to paper. Here's Lincoln presenter Joe Woodard with another story of Lincoln's sense of humor. Lincoln greatly enjoyed a story that he'd been told by another Whig legislator when he was in Washington serving in the Congress. A man named Tom Corwin told him that he had met a man who had known George Washington. And this man told Tom Corwin that George Washington should, quote, curse like an angel, unquote. (laughs) And Lincoln was delighted to learn that George Washington had cursed. It made George Washington a lot more human. And uh, there was um, a... um, a movie a few years ago, Spielberg. Oh, Spielberg? Was it just, yeah, just Lincoln? Yeah. Some of their ALP members were terribly upset that it portrayed Lincoln as cursing. I was not among those who were upset by that. I found it quite likely that there were times when Lincoln did curse. <laughs> I was much more upset by the scene in the movie where it had Lincoln striking his son. Mm. I thought that that did violence to the real character of Abraham Lincoln, because Abraham Lincoln was well known for keeping his temper in check and uh, restraining himself in the face of great provocation. Lincoln didn't spank his boys when they were young and naughty, so I found it highly unlikely that he would strike his son after his son was a grown man. And while we're talking about films about Abraham Lincoln, let's find out what a Lincoln presenter thinks about the novel and movie Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Here's Michael Krebs. I should note that you were in the official book trailer that was released by the publisher. Yes. I was a little worried about it, but I called a few people, some people I trusted at Chicago History Museum, and said, uh, ask them, do you think I'm shooting myself in the foot for doing something like this? And the response back from almost all of them was, are you kidding? Any foot in the door to get to these kids. What they find out in the book is that Lincoln actually had a sister that died. His children don't know that. That Lincoln had a a stepmother that came into his life. What he was able to do in that book is use some actual history about Lincoln and then twist it into this twilight atmosphere. But really what he was doing too is imparting enough knowledge about Lincoln and his childhood where you might get some education out of it. And as most of the teachers told me in the Chicago area, it gives you street cred. (laughs) This is how you're going to reach those kids when they find out you've done something they're interested in. It's a way to open their door to something broader about Lincoln, the real history of Lincoln. So I took it with a grain of salt. We did it. It was very successful. We've twisted Lincoln into every pretzel you can imagine just to bring him into today's society. Right. So I think I go with those historians, any foot in the door to reach a larger audience or to educate them further about Lincoln, you should take that advantage. I mentioned earlier that Lincoln had been a wrestler. He'd gained quite a reputation for it in the backwoods of southern Indiana. Throughout his life, he was never one to back down from a fight. Here, I talk with Rick Odie of Tremont, Illinois, about the time Abraham Lincoln almost fought in a duel. It's a lesser-known part of Lincoln lore, but Lincoln was actually challenged to a duel, and he accepted. 
This was back in 1842, and it happened at the Tremont Courthouse. James Shields was the state auditor, and he was siding with the Democrats when the Illinois State Bank went bankrupt. Lincoln, a member of the Whig Party, hated Shields' plan, and, under a pseudonym, wrote scathing letters about Shields to a local paper. Shields eventually found out Lincoln was behind the letters and challenged him to a duel. Because Lincoln was the one challenged to the duel, he got to choose the weapon. And he knew that if he chose a pistol, that he would probably die. So he chose broadswords, and he figured with his long arms and this <laughs> big sword, he would have the advantage. Because dueling was illegal in Illinois, probably still is, the duel had to be held on an island in the Mississippi River. Some people say that it was on Blood Island, an appropriate place to hold a duel, and some people say it was on Sunflower Island, a silly place to hold a duel. Whatever the island, the two parties met, stood on either side of a board, which they were not allowed to cross, and took up their sabers. And Lincoln reached up above Shields' head and he lopped off a big branch there. Shields' handlers were quick to say, uh, you're not going to win this, so we need to call it off. Of course, Lincoln didn't want to kill him. So it's sort of a duel. I mean, both parties took the time to travel all the way to this island, which was right outside of St. Louis. So it was a bit of a jog, especially if you're thinking the whole time that you're going to have to kill someone or be killed. But I guess you can say it all worked out in the end, because... They became friends, and actually uh, Shields served as a brigadier general in the Civil War under Lincoln's command. Another thing to remember about Lincoln, that iconic beard, he didn't have that until after he was elected president. For all his years as a lawyer and young politician, for the Lincoln-Douglas debates and his first presidential campaign, he was clean-shaven. He grew the beard at the request of a young girl named Grace Bedell. Here is her story, told by the young historical presenter, Abby Kincaid. At the time of the interview, she was nine years old. Well, Grace Bedell is an 11-year-old girl, and she, um, she saw a picture of Abraham Lincoln, and she thought that he looked really great, but she thought that he would look even more great if he had some, like, whiskers, which is like a beard. And um, so she wrote a letter to... Abraham Lincoln saying that she thought that he would look a great deal better if he had if he had whiskers and that note got to him and he replied and when he went to the train station to meet me he actually did have whiskers so <laughs> so he stopped in Westfield New York to show you that just, just he had taken you. your advice mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the skit we do yeah um, yeah Even though Abby appeared on a podcast called Drinkin' with Lincoln, for obvious reasons, she did not have a drink. And if the real Lincoln came on to Drinkin' with Lincoln, he wouldn't have had a drink either. That's the fallacy of the whole show. Lincoln didn't drink. I knew this going in, but couldn't pass up on a catchy title. Here's Kevin Wood to explain. Well, uh, Lincoln was not a drinker in the sense of uh, alcoholic drinks. It's said that he tried it a couple times as a young man, didn't like the effect it had on his mind. And so he saw no need for himself to to take drink uh, during his life. Now, he certainly had an occasional drink either for medicinal purposes or perhaps at some sort of reception. Uh, He was he would he would imbibe on occasion, but um, very, very seldom and 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 always, of course, uh, not much. So, uh, you know, I would say that Lincoln didn't mind other people drinking as long as they did so in moderation. He, he was famously had a grocery at one point in his life, which meant that he served alcohol. And that was used against him in a campaign. 
You know, so he was not necessarily opposed to other people drinking. He did give a speech uh, once in Springfield to the Temperance Society. Spoke about the evils of alcohol, and mm-hmm. especially the, the overconsumption of alcohol. But. but he also couldn't speak out too much against it because he had to court the non-prohibitionist vote. Oh, and the German immigrants like their drink, yeah. But like in many things, uh, Lincoln was a moderate. You know, he wasn't too far on one side or the other, which meant... In many cases, uh, as president, for example, he was under attack from all sides, you know, on the issue of emancipation. The abolitionists were very upset that he wasn't moving more quickly on emancipation. Now, Charles Sumner, Ben Wade, Frederick Douglass even, whereas the, uh, the conservatives felt he was moving too quickly on emancipation. Well, General McClellan, for example, wrote him a, a letter, 62, saying uh, emancipation should never become a war objective nor a war measure. Of course, by that time, point in time, Lincoln's writing a little proclamation on the subject, uh, which will go against that advice. But, right. but, uh, but Lincoln got it on both sides, since he was, he was somewhat in the middle. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some interesting stories and learning some little-known facts about our nation's most popular president. After the break, we're going to dive into some serious Lincoln history. Honest Abe Lincoln, he set the people thinking. He wouldn't lie to you, and he wouldn't lie to me. There was trouble, he was tried, but the Lord was by his side. The tall American was a man of God. Welcome back to our celebration of Lincoln's life and legacy in honor of his 213th birthday. I'm Clint Cargow. One thing I love about Abraham Lincoln presenters is their ability to adapt Lincoln to just about any audience. They often speak in schools and libraries, and they try to tailor their stories to the places they visit. When I spoke to Kevin Wood in DeKalb, Illinois, he told me this story, fully in character. I understand, uh, you know, we've been talking about DeKalb County, and I believe there's a place here called uh, Shabana. Yeah, well, you know, I knew Chief Shabana. He came to our debate, Douglas and I, out in Ottawa, 1858 first debate. He was there. He came as sort of an honored guest. They had him there. I remember he was up there on the platform with us. Now, interestingly enough, that's the debate where Stephen Douglas got up there. You know, Douglas and I were going back and forth on the idea of what did the founders mean when they wrote all men are created equal? Who were they talking about anyway? And we had different ideas about that, you see. And Douglas is what he said. If you desire Negro citizenship... If you desire to allow them to enter the state and settle with the white man, if you desire to allow them to vote on equality with yourselves, to sit on juries, to judge your rights, then you support Abraham Lincoln and the black Republican Party. I, for one, am opposed to Negro citizenship in any and every form. I believe this government was made on the white basis. I believe it was made by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever. I'm in favor of confining citizenship to white men, men of European birth and descent, instead of conferring it upon Negroes or Indians or any other inferior races. Yeah, yeah, Douglas said that with Chief Shabana sitting right up there on the stage with us. I also wonder what the chief thought of that. It would have been interesting to know what Chief Shabana thought about that, but also what he thought about some of the things Lincoln had to say. Here's Max Daniels on Lincoln's views at that same debate. Lincoln was never an abolitionist, although that's what Douglas kept saying. But Lincoln was always just anti-slavery. He always thought that the states had control over what you call domestic institutions, and that included the institution of slavery. His only objection was the expansion of slavery in federal territories, 
prior to them becoming a state. And one of the questions that Douglas asked him was, if you were a senator and the question came up when a state issued its constitution and slavery was included in that, would you approve the constitution? And Lincoln had to be careful how he answered it. But when he actually answered, he said, was, I'd have to answer it, yes, as much as I hate the institution, the state has the right, if by some miracle they wanted slavery, I would have to approve it. Right. Some of his people who were more abolitionist type than he was didn't like his answer. But Lincoln was basically saying the Constitution doesn't give the senator the right to vote the way he wants to. He has to vote the way the Constitution insists that he vote. And now we have entered the arena of Lincoln controversy. The historical record shows that Lincoln didn't always do or say the things that we today expect of him. Some of the things he said about slavery and African-American equality early in his career do not fit the image we have of Lincoln. They don't follow the Lincoln brand. To better explain this concept, I turn to historian Jackie Hogan, author of Lincoln Incorporated, Selling the 16th President in Contemporary America. Lincoln stands for honesty, integrity, courage, hard work, and basically all American values. But he has become, over the last century and a half, sort of a Rorschach test onto which we project our most cherished values. So we kind of make Lincoln into what we want him to be. We, we recreate him in our own image, which also means that different people and different groups represent him in different ways. So, for instance, we have both Democrats and Republicans using Lincoln, but they construct very different Lincolns, right? They pull out very different parts of his record and use him for their own purposes to support whatever agenda or whatever ideology they're, they're promoting. So we have Democrats and Republicans. We have civil rights leaders and uh, the KKK. So really diametrically opposed groups use Lincoln to bolster their own case. So they create Lincoln in their own image. So not only do people or groups cherry-pick Lincoln's history, they also ignore parts of it, a process Hogan calls Lincoln whitewashing. Over time, his record has become increasingly sort of sanitized. And the reality is that Lincoln was a complex and nuanced thinker. You know, he gave very, very long speeches, you know, three-hour-long speeches that today's audience would not be able to tolerate, right, in our kind of soundbite time. But in those speeches, they were very complex, very nuanced. And over time, his thinking evolved. And so some of the positions that he took very early in his career regarding now, you know, controversial issues like slavery really changed a great deal over the course of his career. So what we see today is a tendency to leave out some of the more controversial aspects of what he said and what he did and to only focus on those things that agree with our sensibilities today. So a great example of this is actually in the Lincoln Memorial and in Washington, D.C. And in the Lincoln Memorial, there are a number of his 
famous quotations that are very prominently displayed. And one of these quotes is from his famous Peoria speech, where he says, if I may quote in 1854, allow all the governed an equal voice in the government, and that, and only that, is self-government. Okay, that's a great quote. It suggests that as early as 1854, he was advocating maybe even not only for the abolition of slavery, but for full voting rights for African Americans. But what that display leaves out is the very next line of that speech. And I quote, Let it not be said that I'm contending for the establishment of political and social equality between whites and blacks. I have already said the contrary. So in fact, he was clarifying that, hey, look, I'm not talking about giving the vote to blacks. I'm not talking about uh, social equality for blacks. I am really talking about something else here. But the Lincoln Memorial leaves out that quote. That is a great example of of what I call whitewashing. They want us to see his advocacy of self-government and something that looks like universal suffrage, but in fact, in the very next line, which they leave out, he's saying, look, I'm not advocating for equality for African Americans. And that is a quote that is, that, that latter half of that quote is very frequently left out. So Lincoln didn't always do or say what history wants us to believe he did or said. But as Hogan points out, he was a complex man who evolved over time. But it's these controversies from his past that modern-day critics often cite for why Lincoln shouldn't stand on the pedestal we've given him, in some cases, literally. Portland protesters ripped down a statue of Lincoln in 2020, and students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison have been calling for the removal of a Lincoln statue on campus. This backlash against Lincoln is not only about his early views on slavery, but also because, as president, he oversaw the largest mass execution in our nation's history. But it's a complicated issue. Here, I discuss it with Max Daniels, who is joined by his wife, Mary Lincoln presenter Donna Daniels. Pipesville, Minnesota has an event every other year. Pipesville, Minnesota is also the area where the Mankato Massacre took place. I need to cut in here to provide a little backstory. And this is going to be like a one-minute version of a very complicated story. But Max is talking about the Mankato Massacre, the largest mass execution in American history, at which 38 Native Americans were hung in Mankato, Minnesota, for their role in the deadly Dakota War of 1862. Now, the Dakota War broke out because of a long-running dispute between the Dakota Indians and the U.S. government, who had, as was tradition, broken several treaties. The government failed to make payments for land it had purchased, it did nothing to stop encroaching settlers, and many of the settlers trading with the Indians were clearly taking advantage of them. So things eventually boiled over and the Dakotas took advantage of the fact that many of the young men were all fighting the Civil War, and they attacked several settlements. Over a period of about eight weeks, Dakota War parties murdered an estimated 600 to 800 white settlers, most of them unarmed women and children. Lincoln hesitant to send troops because of the war, finally sent General John Pope to lead several volunteer divisions against the Dakotas. Pope, by the way, wanted to massacre all of them, but eventually the Dakotas surrendered. 392 were put on trial, 303 were sentenced to death. When Lincoln heard the news, he sent a telegraph to Pope asking for the transcripts on all 303 condemned prisoners. He ordered that there would be no executions until he had reviewed each transcript personally. He was visited by the Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota, Henry Whipple, who begged him to offer leniency. He received word from General Pope that he must execute all 303 or witness mass outbreaks of violence from whites seeking revenge. 
So I took the time, took each of the defendants and read the charges and determined if, in fact, it was worthy of a death sentence. I got it down and uh, that was the number that was executed. The people who were so angered claimed, well, Lincoln oversaw the largest, number largest of execution were... were executed by Lincoln. Mm -hmm. They're right. But I or... also preserved the lives of these others. Anyway, Pipestone has this thing, and they said, we need you to make about a 20-minute speech about, about the Mankato Massacre. You're not going to make both sides happy. So I made a very mealy mouth thing that... No, it wasn't mealy mouth, but it was even-handed. Okay, I, I didn't make either side happy, and I, but I didn't make either side mad, which was the other side. But I'm coming back up the hill, and up at the top of the hill, there's a, a gentleman sitting up there. He's sitting in a wheelchair, both legs amputated. Old beat-up fatigue coat, a Vietnam veteran hat on, and he looked the worst for the wear. And I was in the military during the Vietnam War, and so I have an affinity for, for veterans. So I walked over and uh, I put my hand on his shoulder, and as I often do, I said, thank you for your service. And he says, no, thank you, which caught me off guard. And uh, apparently his great-great-grandfather, I had pardoned from being executed. He was also a master carver at the Pipestone National Museum. Only full-blooded Native Americans are allowed to even work there. The Pipestone is a very soft, almost a clay-like stone used for just making pipes, peace pipes. Peace pipes. And he's a master carver. But if it had not been for Lincoln looking at each one individually... Instead of just wholesale signing off on it. His grandfather would have been executed, but because Lincoln took the time and to look look into the eyes of a great-grandson, it's more than a reenactor moment. It's a it's it's hard to explain the the emotions. Although I'm only portraying Lincoln, but here's a man who would not be there except for what Lincoln did. And every time I think about it, I can see the look on this this man's face that. His, his admiration for Lincoln was just so strong that, that I felt humbled <laughs> just to be portraying him. So I will repeat, a complicated issue, one that Lincoln historians will debate and discuss for centuries. But Lincoln presenter Joe Woodard weighs in on what Lincoln would have thought of all the adoration he has received through the years. Well, unfortunately, I think there's a tendency to make him into some sort of a plaster saint, which I don't think he would like. He's recorded as talking about biographies to his partner, William Herndon, and faulted a great many biographies that they only said the good things about their subjects and didn't point out the faults. And in some of my presentations, I try to, try to make him human. I've been asked, is there anything that I know of that indicates bad character or in Abraham Lincoln? And I've said, I didn't think he treated his wife right in the sense that he made his wife be the disciplinarian. He was never known to discipline his sons. He let them misbehave without so much as a reprimand. And I didn't think that that was fair to his wife. I think that probably came from Lincoln being disciplined harshly when he was a boy. 
as is quite common, we either follow the mistakes that our parents did or we make the opposite. We, trying to avoid falling in one ditch, we fall in the other. That's my own armchair psychoanalysis of Abraham Lincoln. In that same vein, Rick Odie discusses another overlooked issue related to Lincoln's psychology, Lincoln's depression, and he gives us some insight into Lincoln presenters themselves, what drives them to do what they do. I, I know it seems like everyone likes Lincoln, and I believe that's because I think there was a little bit of everyone in Lincoln. He battled everything that anybody here battles, you know. I know depression was a big part of Lincoln's life growing up and, and in adulthood too. And so I did run that by a couple of Lincoln presenters and they both, you know, it's like when you're talking to somebody and all of a sudden you're talking to the backside of their head, <laughs> like, okay, what happened? I said yeah. something that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I took from that that they didn't think I should pursue that. But I, I have done that, and I think depression is a part of our society. I mean, it's, it's almost epidemic. My wife and I lost a son 19 years ago at 21 years of age from depression. And uh, <clears throat> so I kind of feel a responsibility to Brian to mix the two of them, Lincoln's depression and my son's depression, and hopefully, hopefully help someone through this great man that came from the backwoods of Kentucky and grew up to be president of the United States and, mm-hmm. and, and struggled with this depression all his life. Right. I think it's a story that needs to be told and with the whole Lincoln presenting, I'm going with the flow anyway, so wherever it leads, that's mm-hmm. where I'm gonna go. So if the uh, Lincoln's melancholy is accepted, then I'll continue to do it, you know? I, I feel a responsibility to do that. No matter Lincoln's struggles or his faults, During the Civil War, he seized the opportunity to end slavery once and for all. It was a huge risk to his psyche, to his political career, and ultimately, his life. Go for the great reformation for Lincoln and liberty too. We'll go for the son of Kentucky. Welcome back to our celebration of Lincoln's life and legacy. I'm your host, Clint Cargow. While putting together the Drinkin' with Lincoln podcast, I've had the opportunity to meet not just Abraham Lincoln presenters, but Mary Lincoln presenters. One of the Mary Lincoln presenters I met was Laura Keyes. Keyes likes to set the record straight on Mary Lincoln, especially the way her relationship with Abraham has been portrayed. The biggest reason it has been such a focus of historians is because people just don't understand it. However, I would say the same could be said for almost any modern relationship. Of course, an outsider doesn't understand it because the outsider is not in the relationship. What is also the main reason that so many historians look for someone to blame in this relationship, and that person is almost always Mary, is because there are so many differing comments on this relationship. So many of the anecdotes that were gathered before the presidency, while they were a married couple in the city of Springfield, so many of those anecdotes were collected after Abraham's death. They were collected mostly by William Herndon, who did not at all like Mary and did not mind that some of these anecdotes 
were twisted or heightened to show Mary in a bad light. So many relationships, including the marriage of Abraham and Mary Lincoln, had so many positive moments. Keyes also shares a great story about one of those positive moments. Mrs. Dahlman was uh, a neighbor just down the street who had a child right about the same time that Mary Lincoln had her last child, Tad. Well, Mrs. Dahlman came down with an illness of some kind. At the time, it was simply called childbed fever. And Mrs. Dahlman was so ill that she could not nurse her child. And this newborn child was slowly dying. And even though Mrs. Lincoln was already nursing her newborn baby, and I'm sure recovering from a childbirth, she told Abraham Lincoln to just go down the street and just bring the child, bring this infant to her. And so between the two of them, they did this wonderful, loving action and this gift to their neighbor that the the child, the Dahlman child was able to actually live. And Mrs. Dahlman did eventually regain her strength, but it was it was a long time coming. That I feel is a wonderful anecdote because it it shows the love on a couple different levels. They were a team. They did things together. Their love for each other is shown through that. And also, of course, their love and compassion for their neighbors and their fellow man. I also talked to Mary Lincoln presenter Donna Daniels about what it means to her to portray Mary Lincoln. A lot of the other Marys feel the same way, is that we have an opportunity to rehabilitate her reputation. It happened to me today at the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some guy came up to me and said something to me about being crazy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or they always ask me, how come you're not acting crazy? I says, because that's not the only thing about her, you know. The insanity proceedings didn't happen until late in her life, and most of the time they're not aware of all of the things that happened to her that might have caused her to get that way. And I appreciate the opportunity to sort of tell her side of the story. The best reaction I've ever gotten from people is when they say, oh my God, I never knew all that happened to her. No wonder she went around the bend, I would have too. And I said, you know, that's the best thing that she and I can ask for is put yourself in her place. She was certainly not the only woman in America to have lost husband and children, but how do you think you would have responded? You know, be a little understanding. And I said, yeah, I did things that I shouldn't have, that I was embarrassed about later on. How many of you has that never happened to? You know, and to sort of humanize her a little bit because she has this perception, the way that she's been portrayed by so many of the historians and biographers, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction. When you say Mary Lincoln, the first thing people say, oh yeah, the crazy one. And, And that's all they know about her, but they don't know all the stuff that happened to her. She was also very intelligent, very well educated, came from a very well to do family. She was a very good partner to Abraham Lincoln to, you know, help him achieve as much as he did. Mm-hmm. Too many of the biographers, I think, want to make it look like he's he became so successful in spite of her instead of with her help. And I and, and the other Marys, we appreciate the opportunity to portray her as, you know, more of a human being than this caricature that she sometimes has become. When I was piecing together the Drinking with Lincoln podcast, I had the opportunity to attend a statue unveiling with Lincoln presenter Michael Krebs. This was the Laughing Lincoln statue in Naperville, Illinois. It portrays a younger Lincoln, sitting down, captured mid-laugh, as if he's just told the funniest joke in the world. Michael Krebs spoke at the statue unveiling that day. 
And I am not at all ashamed to confess that many years ago, right here in Illinois, I was a hired laborer mauling rails at work on a flatboat. Just what might happen to any poor man's son. And now I want everyone to have an opportunity that is equal to my own. You all have, through this free form of government in which we've engaged, an open field for the full exercise of your intelligence. You all have equal privileges in the race of life. Michael Krebs doesn't pull any punches, laughing Lincoln or no. And then he said something that struck me. And again, I must admonish you not to be turned from the stern purpose of defending your beloved country and its free institutions by any arguments urged by ambitious designing men, but instead hold fast to this union. We can succeed only by concert. It's not a question can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better? Krebs' powerful speech was crafted out of different Lincoln speeches and writings pieced together for this specific situation. And his warning about ambitious designing men, that's a line that Lincoln actually said. And it got me thinking about how the words and the wisdom of Lincoln relate to today. And I know these men are not really Lincoln, but what can they tell us about how Lincoln relates to our current political situation? First up, Kevin Wood reveals the backlash Lincoln faced when he arrived in Washington. He performs this part in character. Well, again, I, I don't know how things are today, but I will tell you that back in my day, uh, politics wasn't necessarily very civil. You know, a lot of name calling going on. I was called all sorts of things. I was called a despot, a tyrant. I was called a baboon, an ape, things like that. Well, in fact, do you know that I understand that the state of Maryland uh, has a, a song, a state song, it's called Maryland, My Maryland. You've maybe heard of it? Yeah, the first stanza of that song uh, refers to a despot, a tyrant. Well, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that's the state song of Maryland today. Yeah, I believe it was adopted uh, some years after the Civil War, maybe about the time they started putting up statues and things like that. But anyway, uh, later on in that song, it talks about northern scum. As I say, that's the state song of Maryland this very day. I should note that this interview took place in 2018. Maryland did finally repeal its state song in 2021. I should also note that the movement to repeal the state song began in the 1960s. Despite these insults, Kevin Woods Lincoln still had these encouraging words. I will say this, that when I was elected president, a lot of people in this country weren't too happy. don't know if you know that. Uh, do you know how much of the popular vote I got? I got 39.6% of the popular vote. Now, there were four candidates. Okay, so I essentially got 40%. Douglas got 30 John Breckinridge got 20, and John Bell got 10. And I won the electoral vote, basically by winning the North. Didn't take any states in the South. We were truly a divided nation. A lot of people weren't happy with me. Uh, seven states went so far as to secede from the Union, rather than have me be their president. So I uh, wasn't necessarily a, a very popular fellow. And in my, my inaugural address, I, I said something, talking to those people who felt that... Uh, you know, the country was going to ruin because I had been elected. That's what I said. While the people retain their virtue and vigilance, no administration by any extreme of wickedness or folly can very seriously injure the government in the short space of four years. So I just offer that out to, if there's anyone out there today who might be you know, 
unhappy with their current president or, or maybe the previous president or, or maybe the one before that. You know, as I say, uh, well, in just four years or, or eight years, no fellow can do too much damage to our government. Uh, I hope that's some encouragement. <laughs> and the other I would say, well, just thinking about my second inaugural address. You know, toward the end of that civil war, we were looking forward to the healing this divided nation of ours. And, and uh, well, I summed it up this way. I was looking for a rather generous policy toward the South, lenient policy, and I said, with malice toward none, with charity for all. I think that would do us pretty well pretty much any time. Michael Krebs had this to say. The most important thing I think we can take from Lincoln is his resolve to articulate things that people hadn't articulated so clearly before in ending slavery. And his address to Congress in 1862, his brilliance in writing something he really didn't think would amount to anything, the Gettysburg Address, and the care and love he put into the second inaugural. His wisdom in writing will stand the test of time more than any other president. He had a wonderful economy of words, but those words really rang with truth. And I can't think of anybody I've ever read in all my studies that was so articulate about stating a point of view that maybe people hadn't really thought about before. And he was really opening a door and showing us the light where I think it was a lot of darkness. And to see racism once again rising at the level that it's rising to. We're almost experiencing, not almost, we're not nearly at that point, but we're seeing a lot of things Lincoln was dealing with in his own time. And it wasn't a very big difference between the borderline. It ha happened in Alton, Illinois, that the Civil War really began in the 1830s. And then to see what was happening in Kansas when it was called Bleeding Kansas, people storming in to establish rights for Kansas. Would it become a slavery state or would it become a free state? So there was a lot of things happening during Lincoln's growing up period, his lawyer days that added to the influence of what Lincoln was feeling and finally what he was able to articulate. He was only 21 years old when he wrote a letter to the Sangamon Journal and said, if that's what it's come to in this country, then I'd rather move to Russia where they make no pretense of loving liberty. And I think that's a message that we're starting to see come alive again. If our democracy is at some fragile point, because we have to accept this kind of racism again, then we need to address it with more articulation and be able to talk about it. And I think that's where Lincoln was really opening a lot of doors for us, by talking about it. And in those Lincoln-Douglas debates, the whole nation was listening or reading what Lincoln was projecting for this country. And by the time he became a candidate for the presidency, a lot of people knew about these incredible views and his ability to articulate what was happening in this country. And I think we need that same kind of guidance again. Yeah, um, everything he just said. And I feel like we could just end right there. But if we've learned anything from Doris Kern Goodwin's acclaimed Lincoln book, Team of Rivals, and we have or should have, then we should listen to one more clip. And this comes from my interview with Laura Keyes, who presents the following in character as Mary Lincoln. Well, it was in 1855 that my husband, Mr. Lincoln, was hired to represent Mr. Manny, 
over in Rockford, where he was sued for patent infringement from Mr. McCormick. Mr. Lincoln was to gather first-hand information on the machinery, then join the rest of his legal team when the court would meet. I believe it was in Cincinnati. Mr. Lincoln had never met any of these other lawyers before who would make up the team to defend the Manny Reaper Company, but they knew they must all work together in order to win the case. And when Mr. Lincoln first entered that room, the lead counsel, Mr. Edwin Stanton, inquired where did that long arm baboon come from? And despite this insult, Despite the fact that Mr. Stanton did not join the newly created Republican Party and stand with Mr. Lincoln when he was elected in 1860, Mr. Lincoln saw that Mr. Stanton was educated and talented, and Mr. Stanton was appointed Secretary of War in 1862. So Mr. Lincoln saw, as so few did, and so few do in the current day, that folks had better work together to save this nation. After seeing firsthand that a civil war will not only tear apart a nation, but will tear apart a family, I say to you, work together to heal this breach. And if those in charge are not working together, but are pushing each other apart, find those that will truly work for the good of this nation. After Lincoln's assassination, Stanton stood by his bedside and wept. Then he spoke the immortal words, Now he belongs to the ages. Lincoln's legacy is complicated. His words and actions have been used and misconstrued by a multitude of rival factions. They always will be. But we should always remember, Lincoln was human. He was just a man. He lived, he laughed, and he loved. And he changed the course of this nation for all time. I'm Clint Cargyle. Thank you for listening to this Lincoln Retrospective. And if you'd like to listen to the individual episodes of Drinking with Lincoln, you can find them at WNIJ.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Down with traitor and up with the star As we rally round the flag, boys, rally once again